Good morning. So my wife and I just returned from being out of town. I spent the first couple weeks um, on the mission trip to Spain, which was amazing to be able to visit with Brent and Kim McHugh, as well as to see the work that Christar is doing throughout the world with the Least Reached People groups. It was amazing. And then my wife and I had a much needed vacation for the last couple weeks. But I will say we are so glad to be home worshiping here with you guys again. So um, let's pray and then um, we'll, we'll wade into this text. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need to hear from you today. I pray you would speak to us. Speak to us about who you are and who you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. So we find ourselves living in challenging times, don't we? No matter who you voted for, and it was a strange election season. I feel bad for those who this was like their first time voting. It's usually not this crazy. Um, but regardless of who you voted for, uh, something was revealed about our country. Um, and that it, what was revealed and exposed is that we are a deeply divided people right now. There's a huge fracture in our country. And what I've been wrestling with, uh, no matter who won, was what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? What role does the church play? What role do I play as an individual in this fractured country we find ourselves in today? I wanna read to you a little bit of a letter that Archbishop Foley wrote to the clergy this past week. It spelled out a little bit of the state of where we're at. He wrote, regardless of how you voted, this morning we are called, or we are all even more aware of the fact that our country is in need of healing. Say there's a need for reconciliation across divisions of race, ethnicity, class, and political parties. While the issues are complicated, it is clear that many in our country are scared and feeling wounded. This is the time for the church to be a refuge and to be an example. While living in this earthly kingdom, we must allow our citizenship in the heavenly kingdom to lead us in thought, word, and deed. And so what I've been wrestling with is how do we do that as Christians? What are we called to? What does it look like to live out of a heavenly perspective? With all the different voices that are telling us what to think and what to do, what is God telling us to do? How is he calling us to think? And I don't think it's coincidental that this passage that we, that was chosen in the lectionary for us to read, I don't, you know, decades ago, that it's speaking to the disciples during an incredibly trying time that they are going to face in the future. And it reminds me that the word of God is living and active. And it speaks to us just as much today in the 21st century as it did in the first century. And so, if you guys could open with me your Bibles to Luke 21, 5 through 19. And I really do mean it. Open it up if you have your Bible. If not, there should be a pew Bible. And I want you to follow along with me. This is a really um, challenging text. And so we need to be kind of uh, zoned in today. So it's Luke 21, verses 5 through 19. It's a tough passage because it's a prophecy of Jesus. And he's, he's telling the disciples what they're going to face. He's telling us what's going to happen in the future. 
that there's a world-shaking event that's going to happen. And it's hard, it's tough, because it's hard to pinpoint when Jesus is talking about when this world-shaking event is going to happen. And so I want to structure my sermon today around three really important sequential Bible study tools. The first is this, observation. What is the passage saying? Particularly, what's the cultural context of the passage? What comes before and after the passage? What is the, we need to study the historical, what's going on in the history right in the first century when this is being said. So we're going to look at some observations. Then we're going to look at some implications. Okay, so that happened a long time ago. Well, what's the universal truth for us today? And then finally, we're going to be talking about applications. What do we do? What is this text calling us to do? And so I want to start with observations, because if you get this part of it wrong, then you mess up your application and your implication. So you see in verse 10, 10 and 11, nations will rise against nation. There will be great earthquakes, famines, pestilence, and great signs from heaven. Now, when you hear things like that, when you've heard that verse quoted, what do you generally tend to think of? The apocalypse, right? The second coming of Christ. A lot of times you, you'll see signs of somebody saying the end is near. I don't know if anybody saw the, uh, the Time article that was the front page of Time. It was, <laughs> it was Trump and um, Hillary both holding a sign that said the end is near. There it is. Um, and, I, and, I, and I, was, I knew I was going to be preaching on this text, and then I got off the airplane, and I, and I saw the Time article, and I was like, oh my gosh. So the question is, is, is this scripture passage that we read today about signs in the heavens, is that talking about when Jesus is coming back to restore all things? Is that what the passage is talking about? You can take them down now. Um, so... Is that what the passage is talking about? And so let's make some observations. I want to look in verse 5, so follow along with me. They're speaking about the temple. The disciples are walking in. They're obviously in front of the temple, and and they're looking at Jesus and saying, look how magnificent the stones are. Look how beautiful. It's so adorned. It's so beautiful. And Jesus says something that's very startling. In verse 6, he says, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be One stone left upon another that will not be thrown down. So what he's saying is, the days are coming where the temple is going to be destroyed. And by the temple being destroyed, he also means the sacrificial system. You don't have to atone for your sins through animals anymore. Why? Because Jesus is going to be the once for all sacrifice for us. So he says, the temple is going to be destroyed, which... To a Jewish person, this would be incredibly like, what are you talking about, Jesus? And so, naturally, they ask him two questions. First off, when are these things, and these things being the temple being destroyed, when are these things going to happen? And then, when are, when are, what are the signs going to be that these things are going to take place? So two questions, and, and, and these things, we need to understand that these things are talking about the destruction of the temple. So the first main observation that as we wade into this passage is that we need to understand that what we read, verse 5 through 19, isn't actually talking about the end times. This is talking about the times leading up to the destruction of the temple. And the destruction of the temple happened in 70 AD. It's already happened. So it's, it's talking about a time that's coming in the disciples' lives, but has already come in our lives. It's, it, it's not talking about us. It's talking about a specific time and a place. Now, the reason it's so confusing and I've never 
I've never really studied this passage until, until now. But the reason it's so confusing and why people get it confused is if you look at verse 24 and 25, the subject actually changes. And so everything until 24 is talking about the destruction of the temple. And it says, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles, which is the Romans that came and they conquered Jerusalem until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now we are in the time of the Gentiles right now. And so that time is still being fulfilled. The gospel is going out to all nations, not just to Israel, but to all nations right now. And then in verse 25, then Jesus starts talking about when he's gonna come back and restore all things. And it says, and there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars, verse 27, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Do you, you guys see that? Are you all observing that? So that's, that's when it starts talking about when Jesus is gonna come back. So those are the signs of when he's gonna actually gonna come back. So in our text, the first observation that we have to see is that this is talking about the fall of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem. And so Jesus starts answering, they asked him, when is it gonna happen and what are the signs? And Jesus starts speaking to some of the signs. The first sign is in verse eight. There's gonna be false prophets. There's gonna be people saying, I'm the Messiah, or the time is now here. Now, it's easy for us to believe that, right? Because people are still saying that, I'm the Messiah, or the time is now here. You know, it seems like every couple years there's somebody predicting the end of the world. So we can buy that somebody was predicting that Jerusalem was going to fall and Jesus is saying, hey, don't listen to him. I haven't come back. And then in verse 12 through 16, it says, in the time leading up to the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, there's going to be great persecution. And we know that. We see that in Acts. It, it starts right from the birth of the church. There's great persecution. And this church is still being persecuted. But then verse 10 and 11, this is where we usually stumble. The skeptics in the room, the people that are more skeptical start thinking, ah. And, and I, honestly, I read things like this and I'm like, come on, Jesus. What, you, really, you really expect us to buy that? Because it says this. It says that there is gonna be terrors and signs from heaven. There's going to be earthquakes and wars and rumors of war. And, and especially, okay, we can understand maybe, you know, there's some natural disasters. We can understand war, but signs from heaven and terrors in the sky, I, I don't know if I can buy that. Right? Why? Well, I don't know about you, but I've never seen signs in heaven or terrors in the sky. I've never seen those things before. And so it's really hard for us to imagine what that would be like. And the reality is that Jesus says that when he is going to come back, there will also be signs in the heavens. And in my mind, I'm kind of like, yeah, Jesus, you're overstating it a little bit. You're exaggerating. Come on. I, I don't know if I can buy that because I've never seen that before. It sounds like something from like a disaster movie, doesn't it? So was Jesus being overly dramatic about what was going to happen at the fall of Jerusalem? And the real question is, I mean, from a, a more historical, did that actually happen? If Jesus predicted it, was there ever actually any signs in the heaven? That's what I want to know. Or is this just some sort of imagery or something like that? And so in order to answer that question, I want to tell you about this guy named Josephus. So this is Josephus. He's a handsome looking guy, a very epic beard. Um, he lived, um, he was a contemporary with Jesus. He lived at the same time as Jesus. He was not a Christian. He was a Pharisee. A Jewish man, he fought against the Romans 
when the Romans were uh, coming in and attacking Israel in 67, 68, 69, and during those wars. And then he actually was a negotiator during the, the capturing of Israel when the temple was destroyed. He was a negotiator between the Roman armies and the Jewish people trying to say, hey, hey, what is going on here? We need to make sure that, pe- that everybody isn't killed. And actually his daughter and his wife was killed during the sack of Jerusalem. He's a historical character. And he was, ca- he was captured after that, carried off, um, and he worked as a historian in Rome for the Roman Empire, and he is the most credible source that Christians and non-Christians, he's the most credible source of what life was like in Judea at this time. And he wrote um, a history about the wars, the Jewish wars. And I want to read you something that he, uh, something that he wrote about when uh, the days leading up to Jerusalem being conquered. He says this, Besides these, a few days after the feast, on the 21st day of the month of Artemisimus, I don't know what that means, um, during a specific month, certain prodigious and incredible phenomenon appeared. He says, I suppose the account of it would seem to be a fable. So he's basically saying, I know it sounds crazy. Were it not related to those who saw it. So he's saying, but I don't know, I don't know how to explain it, but this is what I saw with my eyes. And then he goes on to say, and, and, and were it not that the events that followed it of so considerable a nature as to deserve such signs. So what he's saying is what was about to happen when the temple was destroyed, it was such a momentous occasion. It was so catastrophic that literally the skies reflected what was going on in the physical realm, the spiritual realm reflected what was going on in the physical realm is what he was saying here. And this is what he said he saw. He says, for before sunsetting, chariots and troops of soldiers and their armor were seen running about among the clouds and the surroundings of cities. This is from the voice of somebody who is not a Christian. He had no vested interest in Jesus' prophecy coming true. He's just reporting, this is what happens. And he's like, I know it sounded crazy, but talk to somebody that was there. And so, although to us, Jesus' explanations of terrors and great signs in the heavens seem otherworldly and unrealistic, but here we see a historian saying, this is what happened. And I know it's hard to believe, but this is what happened. And so, for us, although thinking about the sun, the moon, the stars, and all these things happening and changing in the heavenlies when Jesus comes back, it's hard for us to to imagine what that's going to be like because we've never seen it, but it has happened in human history and is documented. So those are the observations. You've got to study the text. The first observation is our passage, verses 5 through 27, is not talking about the second coming. It's talking about the time leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem. And then the second coming talk comes in verse 25 to 30. So that's the first observation. The second is, although Jesus' descriptions sound hard to believe, they actually happened. Jesus' words came true. And it's verifiable from sources outside of the Bible. So there's your uh, history lesson, archaeology lesson. You guys, all right, we'll move on from there. Let's move to implications. So what is, what is, because this event has already happened, what does this have to do with us now? 
What does it have to do with the world that we're living in? And I think that there's one huge implication for where we find ourselves today. That Jesus predicted that Jerusalem would fall 40 years before it happened. And he described in detail how it would happen. And it happened. Therefore, God is in control of human history. That God has never been surprised by what has happened in this world. And I think that this is especially appropriate given the deeply distressful time that we find ourselves in in America. Right? I know in my head, yeah, God's in control, right? But man, in my heart, do I believe it? Do I believe it? I'll tell you, most of the time I don't. I certainly don't live like it. I, I bite my nails. I don't believe that God's really in control. So, is he in control? That's the question, because if he's in control, then there can be a deep abiding rest that we can rest in. If Jesus can predict that Jerusalem's gonna fall 40 years before it happens, and isn't he in control of the world? I want you to listen to Isaiah 46.10. God says, I declare the end from the beginning. God says, I know how this is gonna end. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. People of God hear this. God is in control of the world. Max Licato, a Christian uh, writer, wrote an article uh, maybe three or four weeks before the election. And it was called, My Prediction for November 9th. And you know, you're like, ooh, I wonder who you know, he's gonna think wins. This is what he said. He says, I have, an, I have a prediction. I know exactly what November 9th will bring. Another day of God's perfect sovereignty. He will still be in charge. His throne will still be occupied. He will still manage the affairs of the world. God is in control of his world. No matter what happened on November 8th, God is in control. And we need to hear that no matter who you voted for. Now, the question then is, okay, God's in control, sweet. You know, let go, let God. Now, does that mean that we just kind of sit passively by? That's the next question. And the answer to that is no. That you as a Christian are called to be a voice of reconciliation. You're, you're called to stand in the gap. You're called to be a voice of peace in the midst of a time of unrest. Some of you guys work in the government. You are called to be a voice and a light. Some of the young folks in this room, God may call you to serve our country. So we're not supposed to sit passively by, but I will tell you this. As we seek to bring change, as we seek to address these issues that we face, what we all have, we should have, a different attitude, a different disposition than everyone else because we know deep down God is in control. And no matter what is gonna happen, God is on the throne. And nothing, nothing, nothing is gonna take him off of it. And so I need for you to hear that. So this week, no matter what side of the spectrum you're on, when you begin to worry, when you get reactive, when somebody says something and you're like, I'm gonna punch you in the face, remember, God is in control. Be a voice of peace. Be a voice of reconciliation. Rest in his sovereignty. 
and pray because it's God ultimately that changes things. So the implication is that God is in control. So what's the application? What do we do? What do we do this week? What do we do in the coming days? And I think there's one word that I want to call you to this week. And it can be summed up in one word. Let's look at verse 12 and 13. So follow along with me. Jesus has been talking about these big things that are going to happen in the world. And then in verse 12, he turns to what effect it's going to have on the church. So he focuses in on Christians and he says, But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. And this will be your opportunity to run, to hide, to protect yourself. Is that what it says? No, it says this will be your opportunity to bear witness. He's saying suffering, persecution is an opportunity to bear witness to Jesus Christ, to the hope that we have, the ultimate hope in Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you. I really like that and I really hate that. Because how? How do you witness in suffering? It's hard enough to witness on your best day of your life. But how do you witness, bear witness to the hope we have in Christ in the midst of suffering? And here we see in this text two promises. First off, in verse 15, Jesus says, when you are delivered over, he's saying it to his disciples, but he's saying to us when we go through persecution and through suffering, when you are delivered over, don't think about what you're going to say. He says, I will give you a mouth and a wisdom. I will give you a mouth and a wisdom. What Jesus is saying is, no matter what you're going through, I am with you. I want to tell you this. There has never been a martyr who's died alone. That Jesus has been right with him. There has never been a Christian who suffered. No matter how isolated they feel, who suffered alone, Jesus is right there with you. No matter what you are going through, no matter what you brought through these doors today, no matter what you're feeling, I want you to know that Jesus is right there with you. So the first thing is, when we suffer, Jesus suffers right alongside us. And secondly, there's this promise, it says, and this is, a, this is a hard, in verse 16, it says, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers. The persecution will come from even your family and relatives and friends. And some of you will be put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he says, but not a hair of your head will perish. And by your endurance, you will gain your lives. Now, when God promises he will bless and protect and deliver us, he isn't saying that I will deliver you from suffering. He actually, actually promises that you will suffer. He says, he tells you up front, it's going to be hard. He doesn't say I will deliver you from suffering, but he says I will deliver you through suffering. I will get you through. And therefore, for us as Christians, no matter what, we know, no matter what we face, even if it's death, we know that there's a light and there is life at the end of the tunnel. And so with those two promises, first, that when we suffer, we never suffer alone, and secondly, that there is always life and light at the end of the tunnel, we are armed with this great power to be able to, even in the midst of suffering, bear witness 
So that's what I want to call you to this week. Witness. One word. Witness. I want that to stay in your brain. Witness. Tell people of the hope you have. Because there is people struggling right now that do not have the hope that you have. There's people that are saying it's doomsday, it's the end of the world. You have hope that they don't have and they need to hear it. Bear witness. And the question is, well, who do we bear witness to? Jesus outlines this. So Luke is, the, is kind of part one on Jesus. And then part two is Acts, where Jesus is, is working out his work through the church, written by Luke. So Acts 1.8 says, you will, be, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. He's picking up on what he was saying back in Luke. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, to the apostles, Jerusalem and Judea, they need to be a local witness. That's where they live. Now, you are called to be a local witness here in Clay County, right where you are. In your workplace, in your neighborhood, Jesus is calling you to be a witness of the hope that we have in Christ. Well, who's he calling? You calling who to be a witness? Wait, Mike's a witness. You know, Sam Garrison, now he's a witness. But not me. I'm not a witness. Who's he calling to be a witness? Yeah. I would have you guys raise your hands, but that's okay. He's calling each of us to be a witness right where we are. So this week, I want, to, I want you to look for an opportunity to bear witness in a simple way. You don't have to share the whole gospel with somebody, but one small way that you can be a witness to who Christ is, and, and especially speak of the hope that you have. So the first thing is be a local witness. The second thing is Samaria. Go to Samaria. So Jerusalem, Judea, then Samaria. Now here's the challenge with Samaria. The, the apostles would not have liked when he said that because Samaria was the political enemy of Israel. What Jesus is saying is, here is be a witness to your enemy. So this week, what I want you to do, and I really, I really want you to do this because I think our country needs it. I want for you to reach out to somebody that, that you politically disagree with, no matter who you voted for. Find somebody that you disagree with. And I want you to try to hear their heart. I want you to listen to them. I don't want you to tell them what you think about political parties. I, don't want, you to tell, I want you to just listen. And I particularly want you to listen to their fears and their concerns. Listen to him. Just listen. And then if you get the opportunity by the end of the conversation, share with them where your real hope is. Amongst all the loud voices, there needs to be one voice, a few voices, Christian voices that are saying, yeah, it's a crazy time, but we know where our true hope is. I know where my true hope is. Do the people you disagree with know where your true hope is? And if they don't, share with them. And if you're like, I'm a little too shy to go that far, then write them a note and just say, hey, I know we disagree about things, but I need you to know, I need you to know where my true hope is. Be a witness, even to your enemies. And finally, I want to call you to be a witness to the nations. It says, Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth to the ends of the earth. And in Mark's version of this teaching of Jesus, Mark says, that, uh, Jesus is saying, they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors, kings. All that sounds familiar. And then he slips this thing in. He says, to bear witness before them. And he says, and the gospel must be first proclaimed to all nations. Now here's the deal. 
Jesus isn't going to come back until everyone knows. That's what the scripture says. The gospel must first go to all nations. And so Jesus has called each and every one of us to bear witnesses globally, to be a global witness. Now, the question is then, you're probably asking, well, how can I be a global witness? Come on. Well, it's great you asked. Because today, in the fellowship hall, right after church, there is a missions expo. And it's an opportunity for you to learn about what's going on around the world that that our church is supporting. But it's also an opportunity for you to have a little bit of a role in God's work. You don't necessarily have to go to Cambodia or somewhere really far away in order to to be a global witness. So I want to call you to do a couple things. Kids in the room. Hey, guys. So... This right here is over there waiting for you. It's, it shows you some different ways that you, just little old you, can, can be a little bit of a global witness. And there's some fun fill in the blanks. And guess what? There's even prizes if you fill them all in. So it's really fun. You should go check it out if you get a chance. Parents, three things that you can be a global witness. First off is that we're starting these things called prayer and care teams. It's basically like adopt a missionary. And it's an opportunity for you to begin to pray for, send care packages to, and talk a little bit with a few missionaries that we support. Whether it be Brenton Kim, whether it be Liz Christensen, whether it be Christian Hart, it's an opportunity for you to hear a little bit about the work they're doing and pray for it. The second thing is, there's opportunities to serve in global missions. How are you gonna do that? First off, there's mission trips. There's one to Guatemala, there's one to Peru this coming summer. But if you're like, I can't go, I'm up neck deep in kids, or I can't go, my work is too busy, I'll tell you about this. The nations are coming to us. There's an organization over there called World Relief, and they are bringing people from all over the world, from war-torn countries and North Africa and Asia, all these places are coming to us, to Clay County of all places, right? And they're coming from countries that are close to the gospel, and we get an opportunity to welcome them, love them, help them make a home here so that the first faces that they see are faces that love them. And so that's another opportunity for your world relief. So Jesus has called us in this time to be a witness, be a local witness, find somebody in your life that you can share the hope that you have, be a witness to your enemies, and finally, you have just a little part to play in being a global witness. What our world needs now is a witness. So this week, go and be one. Let's pray.